I really didn't get to know Heidi until she started to die. Heidi sat in the back of services here at CCA, and she was pretty quiet. She would attend with her husband on occasion. And once the cancer diagnosis came, that gave me an unfortunate but also a blessed opportunity to spend some time with her, to connect with her, to get to know her a little bit better, and, and to really just to be amazed by her story as she immigrated from Germany when she was really little, or maybe a better way to say it is her parents smuggled her out of Eastern Germany, smuggled her from out underneath the Iron Curtain when all of those historical events came crashing down. And, and to hear her story of, of immigration and then later on in life, uh, making it as a single mom, all of the amazing things was, was encouraging and a blessing. And we were able to connect with some common points of history. My grandparents immigrated from Germany. I spent a month over there in my youth, and, and it was fun to make those personal connections to get to know each other a, a little bit more and um, to enjoy her sense of humor and everything that God made her to be. Heidi was worried about heaven. She was worried about heaven. And heaven can be one of those things that is that is abstract and hard to, hard not only to put into words, but hard to imagine. Because when we think about heaven, one of the things that we're automatically thinking about is the things that we'll lose in going there. We imagine and think about the loss of relationships that we have here, the loss of familiarity, the loss of familiar settings that, that bring us comfort. And that was thinking about some words to share, and these words seem to bring Heidi some comfort. How I imagine heaven, how I imagine rather the life beyond, not just heaven, is that it's everything good about this world, and more, and none of the bad, and none of the bad. Well, this happened over about the course of a year, uh, meeting with Heidi off and on as uh, she wrestled with this. And as so many of you have struggled through facing a, a life-changing disease, there was, there was a, a, this process that, that she and her husband underwent, this search for the best available doctors, a consideration of, of any available options, any options that were available to them, mixed with frustrations, disappointments, uh, glimmers of hope all along the way. A few, months, I, a few months in, I was able to visit with Heidi again. And she was up on her feet looking stronger than ever. Had God answered our prayers? Had God answered our prayers? Now, there was this new optimism in the air. Uh, everyone was starting to wonder if God had brought the healing that we had prayed for. Or was it too early to say well, over the past few weeks, we have been digging into the Gospel of Mark, specifically looking at Jesus' first few weeks and first few months of ministry to see the kind of things that happen when God does something new. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, people could tell that there was something afoot. There was something different in the air, something something was happening. God was bringing new forms of ministry he was bringing people to repentance and to, 
the opportunity to turn and find new things for their lives. God was also bringing a new message, the good news. Could it be for people who, who are fighting debilitating and, and sometimes life-threatening diseases? Could it be for those people that God wants to do something new for them too? Well, a lot has changed over the past 2,000 years, but death, death is still an enemy. And we still face diseases of all kinds. As so many of you have walked that road personally, or so many of you have walked that road with a loved one, somebody that you care about, chances are you've looked at God for a miracle at some time in your life too. And yet we know that not everyone receives the miracle that they pray for. We know that. And if you find yourself here today or joining us online and you just find yourself a person who is maybe more skeptical, the truth is that you, you have reason to be skeptical. You have reason to be. With so many healing ministries that have been exposed with, with sadly, even Christian leaders, even recently, some Christian leaders have faked illness to gain the celebrity that comes with having received a miracle. You have reason to be skeptical. At the same time, is there, is there still a place for miraculous healing? For those of us who, who live in the age of modern medicine and Western reason, is there still a place for that? Do we serve a God who is active today in our pain, our misfortune, in our illness, in ways more than just platitudes? Ways that are more than just platitudes. Given the mystery of healing, how could we even know when God is really involved? Well, it turns out that when Jesus showed up on the scene, so did healing. It was a new thing. Healing was a big part of his ministry. But as we are about to find out, Jesus just so happened to be skeptical about healing in his own way, too. Let's jump right into the action in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus was indignant. We'll come back to that in a minute. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell, tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he, he went out and he, he began to talk freely, spreading the, the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in, in lonely places. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, Mark is one of my favorite gospels. It's, it's one of my favorite. Throughout history, the, the consensus was that 
the near consensus was that Matthew wrote his gospel first. But, but in recent times, in the past 200 years, that consensus has shifted. And people now believe that Mark was the first to write and that Matthew and Luke both relied on Mark's gospel and other sources to write and craft their, their own narrative of Jesus' life and ministry. And one of the things that I love most about Mark is that it just feels more raw and it feels more visceral. visceral. Of all the gospels, Mark portrays the disciples the messiest. You aren't going to find a messier more honest, raw portrayal of the disciples anywhere than Mark. Mark does it best. It feels honest. It feels, um, in a way, in a strange way, encouraging. When you dig into Mark, some of its unique features, he uses certain words that hint that he was aware of, of places in Rome. So there's a chance that Mark was writing to a group of Roman Christians who were suffering persecution, uh, perhaps during the great persecution of Nero or other Roman emperors at the time. He was writing to encourage them, and he was possibly, given everything that Mark says and, and piecing the evidence together, there's a good possibility that, that Mark was writing to a young church who saw Christians stepping away from their faith, renouncing their faith for fear of persecution. They would renounce their faith, and then they would come back to the church, and that young church was trying to deal with that. What do we do with these people? They rejected us. They renounced the faith. How do we, how do we deal with it? Do we incorporate them back in? And there's a good chance that Mark's gospel was written. The story of Jesus was actually retold, emphasizing the messiness of the disciples to teach this young church to remember that even the disciples, their leaders, were messy too. And even the disciples had struggled and, 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 and made mistakes about publicly sharing their faith. It nearly climaxes with two parallel accounts. There's a Peter and there's a Judas. Chances are that's why this gospel was written, and we'll come back to that in a moment. In this scene, we see some of, that, some of those raw and visceral moments, too. We see a compassionate heart for a leper. Now, getting a, getting a diagnosis of leprosy in that day was basically like getting a death sentence. Uh, the, the rabbis during the day, they would talk about leprosy as being the one disease that was uncurable. And not only that, there was a social element to that. The lepers were unclean, so they couldn't engage in society. You had to keep your distance from that. So it was almost like a double disease. That's kind of the situation around leprosy. Now, ironically, you weren't supposed to touch a leper because you would be made unclean. But Jesus touches the leper to make him clean. He reaches out and presses into that space. You see this raw and visceral and surprising moment where Jesus draws closer instead of, instead of drawing away. But that's not all. Jesus expresses his wholehearted desire to make this man well. If you are willing is what the translation read here. And we've talked about that Greek word before. And sometimes I feel like it's translated a little bit too technically. You could just say, if you're open to this, Jesus, if you want to heal me. And Jesus' answer is a definitive, yes, I want to heal you. Yes, I want to heal you. 
But sandwiched on either side of this yes, this positive affirmation, are two strong, interesting statements. Jesus, Mark says that Jesus is indignant and proceeds to sternly warn the man not to tell the public what happened, only to go to the priest so that he might be socially restored to society. Don't tell people Jesus was indignant. Now, I want to pause for just a moment to talk about that word, that word indignant. And we're going to go on a little bit more of a technical detour, something that we wouldn't usually do on a Sunday morning. But it's in this case, it's really important for understanding what's going on in this text. So hopefully you can, you can, you can hold out with me for just a moment as we go on a little bit of a tour. Because chances are, if you were reading along in your Bibles and you were reading from another translation, you did not see the word indignant. You saw a different word. You saw the word compassion instead. And sometimes when we read the Bible and we we encounter these differences, they can be unsettling and disturbing. And we can have a knee-jerk reaction to say, well, this must be a bad translation or something like that. And that keeps us from actually going a little bit digger, going a little bit deeper and digging to understand what's going on there. So what I want to do for just the next few minutes, if you hold with me, is just to explore where our Bibles come from. Kind of like that show, How It's Made, in a way. Um, you know, we, our Bibles come from, you know, the voice of the Lord, obviously. But how do we get like this here today? And, and really the big idea is this. Our Bible comes from a set of ancient manuscripts that have been preserved over time. Really many manuscripts. And, and so I want to break that down a little bit. Um, first by starting out and saying, pointing out that the New Testament has more manuscripts than any other historical document by far, by far. If I had a jar full of M&Ms and each M&M represented a New Testament manuscript, the, the next most populous uh, document on the list would just have a handful of M&Ms by comparison. Think of something like the, the Iliad or, or the Odyssey. It, it's, it's really without compare. The amount of manuscript evidence for the New Testament is it's huge. It's massive. Secondly, as with most other historical documents, especially of the really ancient nature, the originals, there's a technical term for it called the autographa. You can see the word autograph in that. They no longer exist. They no longer exist. We don't have the actual penmanship of Paul. Mark, when he wrote down his gospel, we don't have that papyrus, and chances are it's dust. <laughs> it's, it's that old. Now, we do have old documents dating to that time, but they, they tend to show up in small little fragments and little pieces. So the originals, they, they no longer exist. Third, there are manuscript differences among those many, many, many manuscripts. And those manuscript differences have been organized by scholars and thinkers into groups. Uh, the groups of like manuscripts that may have been produced from similar copies over time. And scholars, they look at these sets of manuscripts and they, they call them families of manuscripts. And they, they, they assess them with various tools and means. And, and they discern that some families 
may have been more reflective of the original than others. So that's number three. Now, now lastly, well, before I get to the last point, uh, it has been said that, that we have 110% of the New Testament. And the job of people who uh, take those manuscripts and, and bring us the, the New Testament and the Bible is to, to find the, 90, the 100% within that 110%. Uh, and here's the last point. Most of those differences that exist are minor. In fact, most of them, like 99% of them, are spelling errors or spelling, not errors, but spelling differences. You know, we spell names differently. Uh, even we spell names differently, and, and so did they. Uh, sometimes we can trace an eyesight error. We can see that a scribe, a copyist, writing down one copy to another looked at the wrong line and he pulled a word from one line and he accidentally put it in the wrong place. So we can trace some of those. In some cases, in some cases, uh, a scribe would read something that didn't seem like it fit. And they thought, well, the copyist of this last manuscript must have gotten it wrong. So they would correct it. They would correct it. Now, hang with me there, because we'll come back to that. But um, in, in no cases do these differences affect doctrine or major belief, which is utterly astounding and amazing. But let's go back to that one example of where a scribe looked at something and, and said, this doesn't seem to fit. They must have got it wrong. Well, chances are that's what happened with our instance of indignation slash compassion here. One scribe probably read indignation and said, that doesn't fit here. It must have meant compassion. So they, they changed it with good intentions because they thought it was the right one. What we have is we have many manuscripts that are old that read compassion. But we have a few manuscripts that are also important and good that read indignation. And you've read it. It doesn't seem to fit here, but what people who are called textual critics, people who do this work, they use a principle, and that is, you're hanging with me, right? The harder reader, the harder reading is the better reading. And here's why. The harder reading is the better reading. Because we can explain where indignation, I'm sorry, we can explain where compassion came from. It's hard to explain where indignation came from. You can see where a copyist would have changed compassion, I'm sorry, indignation to compassion, but not the other way around. That's a lot. You just got a really heavy theological education there. But it's important to know so that we kind of know and we aren't exposed to these things outside of the church and so that we can be honest about our text and how amazing it is. Also, there are sometimes, there are times when we have to deal with certain challenges like this. Chances are the original was indignation. Okay. What does that mean here? What does it mean that Jesus felt indignation in this moment? Well, first of all, what is indignation? Indignation means, to, to be ignorant mean indignant, uh, it means to... Um, kind of experience a sense of displeasure, a 
sense of displeasure, uh, almost usually over something that you feel is a violation of righteousness. But the original word in the original language is actually more general than that. You could just say Jesus was angry. Jesus was simply upset about something. Now, some have suggested that Jesus is upset over the leper entering his space so casually. But that really doesn't make sense of the context. Why would Jesus want to heal this person if he was upset about him entering into his space? Uh, And then why does he even reach out and touch him? So chances are that's not the best explanation. Others have suggested that Jesus was upset over the man's condition, uh, generally upset over the presence of things like death, illness, and pain in the world. And while that's not hard to imagine, Jesus doesn't really make statements like that elsewhere. And you would imagine that Mark would want to clarify that here if that was what was going on. So what does it mean here? What does it mean that Jesus was upset, frustrated, disappointed in this scene? Well, to answer that question, hang with me still, we're going to take a couple more steps back in the story to see how we got here. Earlier in Mark, we're going to start at Mark chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus casts out demons while preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus is doing this on the Sabbath, and and casting out demons might have been considered a a violation of religious ritual at the time. If so, Jesus is about to lean in even further, and this this is what Mark says. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her. He took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Remember how we talked about Mark's messy portrayal of the disciples? Well, one of the ways that he likes to emphasize the messiness of the disciples is by bringing in side characters that exhibit really strong faith. Uh, possibly like the mother-in-law here. Now, let's not miss that point that uh, Mark makes about the mother-in-law. She, After she was healed, she got up and she served. She got up and she served. This isn't a menial task. The same word is used of, of the angels earlier when the angels minister to Jesus and serve Jesus. What Mark is doing here is he's doing two things. First, he's showing that the healing worked. The healing really worked. She got up and she served. And secondly, Mark may be showing us also that Jesus heals with a purpose. He heals with a purpose. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to that. Well, it turns out that an unfortunate drawback of doing miracles is that when you do one, the demand skyrockets. The news gets out. And uh, people wait till the Sabbath was over at night so that they could carry their, their sick to Jesus, and they do so in droves. This is what Mark says. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. 
Jesus was out healing late into the night. And it's hard to imagine how exhausted he must have been. This is important because the next action before the sun rises demonstrates the urgency that Jesus felt. Mark continues. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Every time someone looks for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, it is not the good kind of looking. Here we see our messy disciples again, and the tone of this might be better captured in this way. Jesus, what in the world are you doing here? There's more healing to be done. We've got a thing going. Jesus isn't having it. Jesus has another purpose, and that's perhaps why he stepped aside to pray. Lastly, Jesus says this. Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons, which leads us back to the story of the leper. I have come to preach, Jesus said. Why? This is why I've come. Come where? Well, certainly he's come outside of Capernaum to get away from the masses who had expectation that he devote his entire life to a, to a healing ministry. But there's probably also a subtle hint here that he's this is why he's come to earth. This is why he's come in, in, a grander, in the grander scheme of things. There is a clear contrast between the disciples' desire that Jesus devote his energy to public healing and the call Jesus feels to spread God's message. But was Jesus against healing. No. Casting out demons and and the healing of broken bodies were necessary companions to the message. But this is important. And here's the thing. They were not substitutes for the message. They were not substitutes for the message that Jesus preached. That's because the good news, the gospel... The good news about God's order and rule breaking into the universe, breaking into our lives. The good news that, that Mark opens up his, his gospel with. The good news that we see at the end of his gospel, some disciples are too scared to share. That good news, is it's more than just power to push spiritual forces aside. It's, it's more than relief from a fever. It is more than a few years added onto one's life. It is a power of whole life transformation. It's relational healing. It's spiritual healing. It gives us new eyes to see. This is why the fact that 
Peter's mother-in-law got up to serve is, is so important because she wasn't just healed to, to continue to exist. She was healed to fulfill her divine calling, her divine calling. This is also why the encounter with the leper is both, it's both, it invoked both desire and it invoked disappointment at the same time. Jesus wanted to heal the leper. He really wanted to heal them. That's what he said. I want to heal you. At the same time, Jesus could see where all this was going. The public attention that would make it harder for him to preach whole life healing uh, was going to get out there. That's exactly what happened. And, And just the thought of it was enough to upset Jesus. Jesus was going from town to town. He would go into the synagogues. And after he told the leper not to tell anyone else, and he did anyways, he could no longer go into the towns and the synagogues and preach the message there at all. You can see Jesus' pragmatic side come out here. It's really coming alive in this passage. Yes, Jesus wants to heal, but his healing is bigger. Jesus doesn't heal so that we can continue to exist. Jesus heals so that we can experience life. He heals so that we can experience life. And that second one, it's so much bigger. I can still feel the stone step underneath my foot as I visited Heidi for, for one of the last for one of the last times. I was waiting at the door, um, and I kind of just took a deep breath. I knew that this was sacred space. Heidi and I had talked about this being sacred space the moments before we pass away. At the same time, Heidi had grown really weak, and, and she, Heidi could no longer speak. So how do you, how do you bring encouragement? How do you bring encouragement to somebody um, whom you can't have a conversation with. So I was a little nervous stepping in. But uh, her husband greeted me at the door. We entered into a large living space that had basically been turned into a hospital room. Uh, There was a hospital bed there, and uh, her husband, her daughter were there. I pulled up a chair, sat beside her bed, held her hand, read some scripture, shared some of the memories that we shared together and talked a little bit about that. I prayed with her. And we sat in silence for a while, just being there together, being there with her, with her daughter and her husband. And then something stirred in me, and it just, I don't know if it struck me or stirred within me, but For a moment, I became Heidi's voice, and I turned to her husband, and I turned to her daughter, and I said, you know, I think that what Heidi would want you to know right now is how much you mean to her, how much all of the work that you have been doing means to to her, and, and how much she loves you. The work of people and family members especially who care for those who are dying is... It's so difficult. You grieve before you can actually grieve. The weight is huge. 
And so that's what I wanted to share with them, and that's what I felt like Heidi, and that's what I felt like Heidi would have wanted them to know too. And then something happened. The hand that I was holding squeezed my hand tighter. And for the first time in two weeks, lips that were silent began to speak. Two words repeated several times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was not the miracle that we prayed for. At the same time, everyone in that room felt like it was a miracle. It was a miracle for that. It was a miracle for that moment. You see, when God does something new, he, he brings healing. But it doesn't just come to the body. It comes to our relationships He heals relationships. He heals the heart. He heals the soul. And along that journey with Heidi, we saw all of that. We saw the miracle of experiencing God in a closer way. We saw the miracle of seeing the life beyond with joy and anticipation. We saw the miracle of more days, and some of those days without pain. We saw the miracle of of a moment of speech to say, I love you to family members one last time. When God does a new thing, he brings whole person healing in preparation for a greater, in preparation for a greater journey with him. Whole person healing. So what about you? Is God doing something new in your life? Is God doing something new in your family? Could God be doing something new in this church? And if so, what kind of healing could he bring? Healing from a past wound, healing from a relationship, added days in the midst of a disease? How about divine perspective to see whatever God has ahead. Wherever you're at on your, on your healing journey, let me offer a few steps to take you a little bit closer. Number one, pray for healing. Pray for healing. Jesus responded to simple, simple prayers, the simple prayers and the simple faith of simple People. You don't get a PhD in prayer. You just do it. You practice it. And then you practice it more. You practice it as persistently as those political ads that keep coming to your newsfeed. That's how persistent you practice it. You keep practicing it and you keep practicing it. And it's not just a platitude prayer. Yes, there are ancillary good things that happen when we pray, but God invites us to pray so that things happen. Second, expand your your prayer perspective. Expand your prayer perspective. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the things that he told his disciples to do is to say, give us 
this day our daily bread. And that was Jesus' way of teaching his disciples to acknowledge the everyday things that we receive and that are necessary for our livelihood. Those are things that we are, are, those are things that we should acknowledge come from him. And those are things that we should pray for every day. But there's another part of that prayer too. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Ask yourself, what could God's kingdom look like right now in your life? In what ways might your life look different if you, if you opened your heart fully to his spiritual designs and purposes? And how might that reshape the way that you pray? Lastly, as, as we anticipate the day when we receive bodies that can't be broken, remember God, God sometimes has a purpose for pain and can always repurpose pain for some good. He can always repurpose pain for some good. Pain, not, pain may not be the end of our stories, but it is a part of our stories. As we courageously endure twists, turns, the, un- the unexpected breaks, the sadness, we can be transformed when we keep our eyes fixed on him. When God does a new thing, he brings whole person healing in preparation for a greater journey with him. Are you willing, Jesus? His answer is Definitively, yes, I want to. But what he means by that might be a lot bigger than we ever imagined.